0: Today, normally we do that every Sunday, but the last Sunday of the month, just so the kids would get to see what we do, uh, we're going to keep them in the service. In fact, I was at a communion service with uh, my youngest daughter who goes to Children's Church on Christmas Eve, and uh, she asked about the Lord's Supper elements, because she really hadn't seen it so much. And that's one of the purposes, is to have the kids in here so they see what we do and even see the Lord's Supper, and uh, which we're going to celebrate after my message this morning. So as we're gonna preach, I'm gonna preach the word right now. I invite the children; they can come up right now and they can get their notes. We provide notes for children so that they can uh, pay attention during the service. And afterwards, we have a treasure box for the children so they can do that. And the rest of you can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter four. Well, I thought this morning of continuing on with our exposition of Matthew as we finished last week, Matthew chapter 22, but I thought, you know, this is a good natural break for us and as we begin the new year, I thought we'd begin a new chapter in Matthew, so beginning next Sunday, we'll be in Matthew chapter 23, which speaks about the dangers of hypocrisy. And we'll be speaking about hypocrisy for several weeks, probably in January. So you might just really think about that. Pray to the Lord to reveal that in your own ways, and that the Lord would convict us all that we would be a genuine assembly of Christ followers. That's what we ought to be at Rock Valley Bible Church. And so this morning is really a, a break. I'm just going to take a, a one week segue. Rather than uh, focusing upon Matthew 23, which we will next week, I wanted to focus this morning on worship. I've been thinking a lot about worship in uh, recent days. I've been talking with my wife a lot about worship. As we think about music, we think about worship and what it is that we do. And I, I think about worship, and it's something that we do every Sunday at Rock Valley Bible Church. We gather for a time of something we call corporate worship. That is, worship together. It's the one time in the week when we come together and worship the Lord. Certainly, we all ought to be worshiping the Lord privately and in our homes and in our families. You ought to be gathering for family worship in your homes. But it's just one time we gather Sunday mornings for what we call corporate worship. And really, what we do in our corporate worship is really what we will do for eternity. If you are in Christ this morning, you will sing praise to God for eternity. You will offer up prayers to God for eternity. You will learn of God and about God for eternity. And so this morning, I would like for us really to get a taste of worship in heaven. I want us to see what worship in heaven is like. The aim of my message this morning is really to show you what perfect worship is that might impact and improve your worship. As a church, we might be better worshipers of God I mean, I think if you want to be better at something, one of the best ways to do that is observe those who are the best at it, and then seek to emulate them. If you want to be a better basketball player, you watch the NBA. If you want to be a better musician, you listen to the London Symphony Orchestra. If you want to be a better theologian, you read the... The dead guys, the best theologians of the past. If you want to be a better worshiper, you look to heaven and see what worship in heaven is like. You know, it's been said, if you, if you dangle over the pit of hell for 15 seconds, you will live differently in this life, realizing the realities of what is to come. And my desire this morning is to dangle you in heaven. So you might see what worship is about in heaven, that you might worship differently. And there's no greater passage for us to do that than Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Yes, it's true, I'm going to preach through two chapters this morning. And as such, we're not going to get bogged down in too many of the details, because there is great mystery within these pages for sure. There's a throne that's mysterious in these pages. There are, are living creatures unlike you've ever seen before in these pages. There are 24 elders who can only be identified by speculation at best. There's this scroll, which it's difficult to know exactly the significance of that. But my focus this morning isn't going to be to get on all those details. I'll certainly comment on them. But, but really the big focus this morning is to see what worship is like. What worship is like in heaven. And to set the stage, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He was exiled as a prisoner to the island of Patmos. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Write in a book the things that you see and send it to seven churches in Asia Minor. And he wrote in chapters 2 and 3 of things that he saw. And in chapter 4, he begins to receive another vision And it begins in chapter 4, verse 1. John said, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me was like a trumpet that said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Picture with me now. John looks, and he beholds into heaven. Amongst the clouds there's this door Again, I don't know exactly what this door is, but he received an invitation to come up through the door. And how do you go through a door that's in heaven? Only by the power of the Lord. And that's what takes place in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. Taken up somehow in the Spirit through the door into heaven to be able to see heaven. The first thing he sees that captures his attention is this throne. He says in verse 2, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This throne then becomes the focus of these next several verses. And as as I read them, I want to do something different at Rock Valley Bible Church. I want you to shut your eyes that you might put out all distraction, that you might be able to see and vision what's taking place here in Revelation. Children, I've got a picture. Children, you can have your eyes open as you draw this picture of what's actually taking place. For the rest of you, it might be a bit strange, you might feel uncomfortable, but I encourage you to close your eyes. I'm going to describe heaven for you. And I want you just to you know, not be distracted by the person in front of you or for the, the child who drops their clipboard or the you know, strange look of somebody or what somebody wear. I want you just to think, cut, shut your eyes so that you can focus all of your attention here upon heaven. Verse 3 says that there was this throne... And he said that there was the one who sat on it. His appearance was jasper and carnelian. These are precious stones. Jasper is a a quartz-like stone, like diamond, that emanates brilliant rainbow-like colors. You can see through it. And this carnelian is a, a deep red, a darkish, orangish, brownish red, blood red. That's the appearance of this one who's on the throne. This clear, translucent red being verse 3 says around the throne was a rainbow they had the appearance of an emerald now normally we think of a rainbow with seven colors but this one is green has all different shades of green from light green to dark green from forest green to olive green spring green these colors of rainbow of green surrounding this reddish being on the throne And around the throne, verse 4 says, there are 24 thrones and seated on these thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. This takes a scene back from the throne. You can picture these these 25 thrones in a big circle all around the throne and on these thrones were, were aged men. With, with some kind of white robes on them, with crowns on their heads, all focusing their attention upon this reddish being surrounded by this green rainbow. It continues in verse 5, "...from the throne <clears throat> came flashes of lightning and rumblings of peals of thunder." So you picture this red being on this throne and from him is is emanating just lightning flashes and, and sounds of thunder. Picture this storm cloud, right upside down, so the lightning is going up and out. And the thunder is emanating from the throne, big cracks and big sounds coming from the throne. And before the throne, this is in front of the throne presumably, at the feet of the one on the throne probably, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of, gra- of glass like crystal. More light before the throne at the feet. The seven torches with other seven spirits of God. And you can vision these things being reflected off the floor, which was like a, a sea of glass, like all around, which would make all the brilliance of the throne doubly bright, as you would see it, and you would see it reflected all about. And it goes on in verse 6, says, "...around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. Strange looking creatures, you won't find them in the Brookfield Zoo." Right, picture their heads with hundreds of eyeballs all around them, all looking in all different directions, all at the same time. And each of these creatures are unique. The first living creature was like a lion. And the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes, all around and within, They were unique. One was like a lion, the king of the forest. One was like an ox, the strongest beast of the day. One was like a man, the one who had dominion over the earth. And one was like an eagle, the stately flying king of the birds. And they all had six wings. Picture them moving and darting about around the throne. And they're probably between the 24 elders around this ring and between the the throne that's in the middle because it says that the elders are beholding them and the elders are watching them. And they're watching them and they're hearing them and these beings, it says, day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This was their constant theme, the constant song they sang. They sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stopped saying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you think you've ever heard a majestic quartet, this is the quartet of quartets. Constantly singing and saying this song. And the elders are watching this and it says in verses 4 and 9 and 10, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, like whenever these creatures give honor to God, which is all the time. These elders, these 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. Now, picture these 24 elders not just passively sitting there in their white robes. Picture them getting up and off of their throne and bowing down and lifting their crowns up and placing it before the throne and bowing prostrate before the throne. It's up. And it's down. It's back on the throne. It's back down. It's up and it's down. Constantly worshiping the One on the throne. And they aren't silent either. As they cast their crowns before the throne, they say, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. As these elders fall on their face, they they cast their crowns before the Lord of Lords, the God who created all things. Your eyes still shut? Do you have this picture in your mind? This throne in the middle of heaven with Almighty God sitting on it. His appearance of this, this fire, deep, blood red appearance that's surrounded by this emerald green rainbow with flashes of lightning and sounds of thunders pealing from him. The floor like a giant mirror reflecting all of that glory. Seven torches burning at his feet. Four strange looking creatures flying around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The 24 elders clothed in white constantly casting their thrones before the one who sits on the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Have that in your mind? Can you, can you picture it? It may sound like science fiction to you, especially these creatures. These creatures might be something that Star Wars dreamed up or that was dreamed up for the Lord of the Rings. But I guarantee you, church body, church family, that this is reality. What you have in your mind is what you ought to think of when you think of God, when you think of heaven, when you think of worship, when you think of God to whom we pray. You need to think of Him. You ought to think of Him as highest and exalted and lifted high and giving all honor and glory and blessing to Him, these 24 elders and these creatures. You ought to think of God like this to whom we sing and to whom we trust. We trust in the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We trust in the Lord, our God, who created all things. You can open your eyes now. Back to reality. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That is worship in heaven. Worship in heaven, here's my first point, is God-centered. Worship in heaven is God-centered. I mean, God was the center of all the attention the one there upon the throne. You have lots of things going on in chapter 4. You have creatures and elders and a throne and a floor and all this activity, but the center of it is God. He's the object of worship. He's the subject of worship. He's the focus of it all. I mean, everything attests to this. I mean, the glory of the throne speaks of the glory of the one upon the throne. You think of the throne of England. It's, it's glorious and ornate, I'm sure. Why? Because the king there is like that. Speaks of the glorious nature of the one sitting upon that. The 24 elders encircle the throne, not placing attention upon themselves, but ten- placing attention upon the one upon the throne. They're not looking to the side to see what their other elders are doing, or this side. They are focused upon the one on the throne. These creatures, as they fly and dart around, are giving glory and homage to the one who's on the throne. The words spoken are giving glory to God. Lots of noise and lots of activity is taking place, but it's all... All the words spoken are words of praise to God. In fact, as we close up this chapter, I just want to spend some moments looking at the words that are said. In verse 8, words are said. And verse 11, words are said. Look at verse 8. It says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These words focus on the character of God. They focus on God's infinite goodness. It's what the word holy means. In like these creatures say three times, holy, holy, holy. Right? Holy is to be separated and, and set apart and to be utterly distinct. Right? Holy is to be pure and unstained and perfectly good, perfectly righteous. There's no sin with God, no stain, no spot. And thinking about this ought to drive you to despair. Isaiah saw this same vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah was a wreck. The most holy person in the land, standing before this thrice holy God, said that he was undone. Among men, Isaiah was doing pretty well. But among God, he had no chance. No chance. In light of the purity of God, in light of the sinfulness of himself, and any sin... Listen any sin before infinite goodness looks like a polluted mess that's what god is he's holy he's infinite goodness he's also infinite greatness look at how they identify god he is the lord god almighty see it's one thing to be mighty it's another thing to be all mighty And there's only one who can be almighty. Because were there another being in this universe that were more mighty than the almighty, he would be called the almighty rather than the almighty. The Greek word here literally means that God possesses all strength. There's nobody as strong as God, nobody as powerful as God. In fact, if you unite all other forces that combine their strength, God would still be more powerful than all of them put together. It's like not even close. God created this universe without losing any strength. The Bible says when the the wind blows and the storms come and the sun rises and the the moon shines, those are but the fringes of his ways. Think of a a great display of, of power that you've seen God do in nature. Think of maybe some hurricane, these Florida hurricanes this past year. Think of these tremendous hurricanes whipping up in the Atlantic, spinning around and coming and devastating the coast of Florida. Think about earthquakes that shake and rumble. India, thousands of people have been killed in recent years. In San Francisco even. Massive destruction by these earthquakes. Think of forest fires up and in a blaze, just huge... Like nothing to God. He is the Almighty. Infinite greatness. Lastly, He is infinite endurance. He was and is and is to come. God never began. God always is. He'll never cease to be. He is eternal. Before this world came into existence, God was. This world exists because God is. And long after this world is burned with fire, God will always be. Let me just help you imagine this, if you will. Just imagine a sheet of paper, right? Very long out that way, going through the wall, maybe out the doors, winding itself around, you know, going all the way up up to Beloit, up to Madison, up up to... Up to Gichigumi Bible Camp, way north. And imagine one way south, going down all the way to to Texas and Costa Rica and Argentina. Then take out a pen and draw just a little line on it. That's time, and that's eternity. But even that fails in many ways. It doesn't even begin to explain the eternity of God, I mean, God isn't even confined to time. He has no past, no future. A.W. Tozer calls him the everlasting now. The reason why God uses words like begin, end, later, afterwards, is to condescend to our creatureliness. God descends to us. He has always been. He always is. He is everlasting, infinite endurance, infinite greatness, infinite goodness. And there's more. Look at verse 11. Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. This verse, verse 11, we find the elders simply affirming everything that these four living creatures were doing. In verse 9, it says that these living creatures were giving glory and honor and thanks to Him who seated on the throne and these elders were simply giving voice of affirmation. Yes, indeed, O Lord, You are worthy to receive glory and honor. Why? Because God is the Creator. God created all things. By the mere pleasure and intention of Almighty God, He brought everything into being. Nothing came into being apart from His sovereign will and decree and His creatures. This puts us in an act of uh, in a position of unbelievable dependence we owe everything our existence and everything to our almighty creator god and those who don't give all honor and glory to the almighty god are blaspheming god When you understand how almighty and all-powerful God is, listen, you understand what a mistake it is to withhold glory from Him. People spend eternity in hell because they refuse to acknowledge their Creator and the glory that He deserves. At this point in the message, I really want to bring it around to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. How does this compare to our worship? How does this compare to our worship at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, certainly there are elements here that we cannot possibly emulate. I mean, in the front of the stage, we don't have lightning flashes coming out here. Maybe I can work on that. What an illustration that would be, huh, kids? We don't have that. Uh, we don't have thunder clasps, though my imitation invitation was about as good as you're going to get. We don't have these type of creatures flying around us. We don't have pictures of these types of things as the tabernacle had on the outside of their tents. But this is the same God we worship. And we ought to worship God according to His character as infinite goodness and infinite greatness, infinite endurance, and as our Creator. And so I simply ask you, when you come to worship on Sundays... Do these type of thoughts spin around your mind that you're worshiping the, the God who's enthroned in the center of heaven? Right? The only being in the universe worthy of worship, deserving our complete submission and praise? Or do you come with a lackluster kind of attitude? Saying, well, okay, I, I've been to church. I've done that. Okay, God. I guess, I guess I'll worship You today. Such an attitude totally misses it. I mean, anything you get from these pages, these elders and these creatures, there was nothing lackluster about their worship. They were fully into it. With their words and their actions and their thoughts. Everything. And I just say God is so glorious and so magnificent that He demands our all. John MacArthur has defined worship this way. He says, Worship is all that we are responding to all that He is all that we are responding to, all that He is. I remember hearing of a church saying one time that the most important person at a worship service is God. And that's exactly right. God is the most important person at a worship service. The heavenly scene in Revelation 4 isn't about creatures or thrones or elders. It's about God. Worship in heaven is God-centered. It demands our all. It ought to be no different at Rock Valley Bible Church. Really, Before we go to our second point in chapter 5, listen, I want you to realize this has implications for us at Rock Valley Bible Church. Everything we do ought to have God at its center. Everything we sing must have God at its center. Everything we pray must be directed towards the Lord Himself. You know, in we live in days where in recent days there are church services that have... Things crept into them, they have no place in worship services. There are things in, in church services today that are bringing glory to the performance of a man rather than glorying glory to God. You know, there's a style of preaching that's man-centered. And there's a style of singing that is man-centered as well. And there's a way to take a service of worship and turn it upside down so it's no longer us worshiping God, but it's god Worshipping us. And perhaps a good litmus test for our corporate worship services would be to ask the question, would such an activity be appropriate for worship in heaven? Would such an activity be appropriate for worship in heaven? Right? Or you might say it another way, is such an activity God-centered? Now, that doesn't take us out of it. Okay? It doesn't take our feelings and our emotions and our expressions out of it. But what it does take out of it is any any bringing back to us. Everything ought to be reflected to God. Everything ought to be given to God. That's our worship. It must be God-centered. Second characteristic, worship in heaven. Worship in heaven is Christ-centered. Chapter 5. Christ-centered. You know, in and of ourselves, we have no possibility of worshiping God in a worthy manner. I mean, that was the expression of Isaiah when he saw it and was undone and broken. Apart from the righteousness, the blood of Christ, we'd be undone, broken. Not can't even worship God. But it's only through Christ that we worship God. But eminently, in our worship, it ought to be Christ-centered. The drama begins in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand... Of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. Now, the scroll didn't look like this. The paper certainly looked different parchment, vellum, whatever. The, the seals certainly weren't stickers, okay? They were wax, you know, imprinted with a signet ring of some type but some type of scroll he had in his hand. The one who sits on the throne he had this scroll in his mind, in his, in his hand. And, and John at this point could have elaborated on many things. I mean, I think of everything I described, there's lots of different things in this heavenly worshipful scene that, that John could have focused his attention upon. But he focused his attention upon this, this scroll in the hand of the one sitting on the throne in heaven. And the scroll is important. It's difficult to know the full significance of this. There's much discussion and commentaries. I read one guy says there are 15 different interpretations of what this scroll is. And my scope of my message this morning isn't going to be to divert all of our attention to what the scroll is, but just to say this, it's important and it has something to do with the revealing of God's salvation plan. In verse 9, it has something to do with Our redemption and our salvation has something to do in chapter 6 with God pouring out His judgment upon the earth. And the scroll causes much anxiety in heaven. Look at verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. This wasn't just any angel. This was a strong angel. And if anybody to take the scroll, you'd think the strong angel would be able to do that. But he said, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? There needed to be somebody worthy to open it. The strong angel, by implication, says he couldn't do it, and the search was on. The search ends in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody was found qualified to do this. There was no angel in heaven worthy enough to open the scroll. No man on earth was worthy enough to open the scroll. The four living creatures weren't worthy. None of the 24 elders were worthy. In the entire universe, nobody was worthy to open the scroll. And it caused much anxiety for John. He began to weep. Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Somehow this drama had affected John's emotions, much like a, a tearjerker on TV or on the movie screen. Right? He was into it. But he was probably into it more than he realized because it had to do with his redemption even there. He knew of the importance of the scroll. He knew it needed to be opened, but none could open it, and it cost him great sorrow. Then the comfort comes in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And onto the stage marches our hero. He's described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a Messianic prophecy traced back to Genesis 49. He's described as the Root of David, which is yet another Messianic prophecy. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. He's described here as the one who's conquered. In verse 6, we get a bigger idea of who this one is. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Big clue who that is. With seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? We see clearly who He is. It's none other than Jesus Himself, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world by His sacrifice upon the cross. Now He looks a little bit different than He did before. He's got more eyes. He's got seven eyes. Kind of strange. <clears throat> Perhaps somehow signifies His Signifying the spirits of God. Maybe talking about his om- omniscience or omnipresence or knowledge. I don't know. He's got seven horns. Why the lamb has seven horns now? I don't know. Maybe signifying his power. Maybe these things reflect that Jesus has conquered and he has conquered through his wounds. And our hero does, hero does a bold thing. This scroll that nobody could take and open, he walks up to the throne and takes it. From his father's hand. And he takes it. That's what it says in verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And we think it bad manners to just take something from somebody. Parents, we deal with that with our children, right? You just can't take that from somebody. And especially, right, you don't take it from an adult. And especially you don't take it from a dignitary. And especially you don't take it from the President of the United States. And especially you don't take it from the Lord God Almighty. But that's what Jesus did because He was worthy to take the scroll. I want to give you a picture a little bit about Jesus and who He is. What made Him worthy was the work He accomplished on the cross. And this is what all of those in the heavenly vision now then focus their attention. They focus upon Jesus, His work on the cross. Verse 8, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down, not before the Lord God Almighty now, they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So somehow they they hold this harp, maybe they're making nice music to the Lamb. Somehow they have these these bowls of, of fragrant incense, which it says here are the prayers of the saints. I think perhaps these are the the, the prayers that have been offered year after year after year. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Think about how many Christians down through the ages have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Well, in Revelation, this is when the kingdom is coming. And perhaps even these kind of prayers are in this bowl being offered up. The kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the scrolls will be opened. Chapter 6 begins just telling about the scrolls being opened and what's going to happen. But their words here focus upon the work of Jesus. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation. You need to notice here, they used the same expressions in the worship of Jesus as they did the worship of the Almighty God upon the throne. They used this word, worthy. Jesus is worthy. A <clears throat> couple reasons why He's worthy. You are worthy because you were slain. They recognized that the Lamb had been killed upon the cross. Right? They saw His wound as He was slain and they noticed that He was the perfect sacrifice. And they understood clearly the significance of this sacrifice. It says, by your blood you ransomed people for God. When Jesus poured out His blood upon the cross, He ransomed people. He purchased people for God. Right? It's here that we get a sense of what the scroll is about. The scroll contains, in some sense, the legal requirements to accomplish our salvation. Nobody else could accomplish it but the Lamb. It's because of His work on the cross that He can take the scroll No other man or animal could have done that. It took the Lamb of God dying upon the cross to accomplish this. It took the righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless for the sinful, the holy for the profane. And when Jesus did this, He accomplished redemption for specific people. He didn't make salvation possible. It doesn't say, Oh, Lord, You were slain and You made salvation possible. He said, No, no. On the cross is when You purchased Your people. So when He accomplished salvation, He did it for every people group on the planet. Not just for Jews, but for Romans and for Russians and for Greeks and for Germans and for Africans and for Americans, for Canadians and Koreans, for Iraqis and Iranians. You name the people group, the sense here is that Jesus died for people within that people group who He ransomed. Jesus transformed these people. Listen, everyone that He bought and He ransomed, He transformed and made them, verse 10, to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Saves them, joins them together in a kingdom no longer separated by national customs and languages and ethnic distinction. Rather, they become a united nation who will reign upon the earth. This earth, probably, by the way, isn't the earth like we have now. It's the new earth. Right, the new earth that receives the new Jerusalem. Don't think about heaven as this just an ethereal thing. We're going to be spirits around. Right, there's this aspect of heaven that's very earthly. It's a new heaven. And it's a new earth. Is where we will be reigning forever. And notice how the rest of the chapter even ends, focusing its attention upon Jesus. Verse eleven. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Here again, John is is coming back from his vision. Rather than just looking upon the throne, he's scaling back. He sees four creatures, but he sees more. He sees 24 elders, but he sees more than that. He sees around the throne... Myriads of myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands, hundreds of millions, billions of angels around worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with a loud voice. Imagine, millions of angels worshiping with a loud voice and saying the contents there of verse 12. Audience participation time. Let's get a sense of this. Alright? I want us to say verse 12 together in unison. Children, it's right up there on your notes. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 12. I want all of us to say it in unison. And I want you to say it with a loud voice. Okay, none of this. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory. I want you all to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain, all of you together. And just stay here the noise. You ready? All together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I want you all to take your cues from the man who might be in heaven before all of us. Right? Loud. Again, you can say it louder. In fact, let's stand up and say the same thing. Here we go. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's heaven. That is heaven, dear people. You may be seated. Do you taste it? Focused on the Lamb. Focused on Christ. There's more. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them. Now, we're not just talking the angelic beings now. We're talking about every creature. We're talking about everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Just every creature that God has ever made. There's discussion about whether this includes the unsaved or not. I think perhaps it might, as every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Perhaps this is every creature that God has ever made, all saying, all together, and I don't want to even imitate this because this is just, we're just one teeny church. Think about all the people of all the times, of all the myriads. Think of the, the volume here. They said, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory. And might forever and ever. The scene is unimaginable. The volume is deafening. One commentator, Simon Kistemacher, said All intelligent beings in God's created universe sing his praises the saints and the angels in heaven, the birds in the sky, God's people on earth, and all living beings on land and sea. The overwhelming chorus of all these voices in praise to God and to the Lamb defies human imagination. As much as you try to imagine it, you can't. The scene is amazing, and it closes here simply in verse 14. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worship. It's as if they put their seal of affirmation upon the worship that takes place in heaven. I got through two chapters. I want to bring my message really to a close that we might worship the Lamb of God. <clears throat> we might remember him in the Lord's Supper. But as you do, as I do, I want you to notice the object of worship in this whole scene in chapter 5, in verse 9. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Who is the you? Who is worthy? Who's I talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. Verse 12. Who is receiving the worship? It's Jesus, the Lamb of God. In verse 13, who's receiving the worship? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God the Father Almighty and Christ Himself. And this is as clear a statement that you'll find in all the Bible for the deity of Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody ever tell you you're not to worship Jesus because He was just a man. I mean, in heaven, the focus of worship is chapter 4 upon the Lord God Almighty and chapter 5 upon Christ. Jehovah Witnesses wrangle about words and stuff. You just take them to the... Okay, tell us the whole thrust of this chapter. It's all about worshiping Christ. Not as the first created angel, but as the God Himself. This is the Trinity. And this is worship. This is how worship ought to be. It ought to be God-centered and it ought to be Christ-centered. That's what it's like in heaven and that's what it ought to be like... Upon Earth, our worship needs to achieve some kind of balance of these two centers. We worship the Almighty, powerful, infinite God, and we worship the Lamb of God, the majestic One who died for our sins upon the cross. But, but really, they're one and the same, right? That's what the Trinity speaks about, because we believe that there's only one God, and so you have two focuses here, and yet you have them. They're one, and this doesn't even speak about the Spirit and how we ought to worship the Spirit as well. It's, it's a mystery, it's a trinity, but it does speak clearly of our focus ought to be God-centered and ought to be Christ-centered. Well, the intention of my second point is to focus upon how our worship needs to be Christ-centered. In our worship, we need to remember and focus upon Christ and His mighty work on the cross. That needs to be a center focus of our worship. As Steve Belandre even said, Our call to worship this morning is it here is later, looking back upon what Christ did, looking and reflecting upon the victory that He achieved upon the cross. It's got to be our our focus. And I just tell you, in recent days, I've come to learn of this more and more and more. I've come to learn of the immense value and worth and importance of the cross in all aspects of our lives. I'm coming to understand a little bit of what Paul said in Galatians 6.14. May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's worshiping Jesus and everything He did in the cross. And that's here upon earth, boasting in nothing but the cross. I'm coming to understand why the the cross really ought to be the forefront of our attention. It's through the cross that we worship God the Father. And it's it's not just even just through. It is Jesus whom we worship. And what's true of us individually ought to be true of us the church as well. Jesus must stand at the center of all that we do as a church. I mean, we are a Christian church. We are named for Christ. And so we worship Jesus. Certainly the language of verse 13 includes God the Father. But it's it's our tendency just to focus, I believe, upon God the Father and not worship and focus our attention upon the Lamb, which is the heart of my point. And, You know, maybe I can illustrate this. I I remember recently being amongst a group of dear Christian friends, solid believers in Christ, precious friends. We're in a setting where we had opportunities to pray for one another and for various things. And I just happened to notice and listen to the prayers of other people. And you know what I noticed? I noticed a God-centered prayer life. I noticed expressions that expressions of God's omnipotence. So, God, You are almighty and all-powerful and we thank You this morning. I noticed acknowledgments of how God created us. You, O Lord, are our Creator and everything we have comes from You. I saw how God was was prayed to and worshipped in His holiness. God, You are so pure and we are so sinful. We acknowledge You are pure and righteous. God's presence was acknowledged. God, I... We, we know You're among us. And You dwell here. You are omnipresent. But you know, over a period of several days I had to spend with these dear friends, Jesus was never mentioned once in the prayers. Or the work of the cross. Or redemption. Apart from at the end, in Jesus' name, Amen. And I'm not passing judgment upon them. I'm not seeking to condemn their behavior. Certainly in many ways, these people are more righteous than myself. I'm simply making an observation. How easy is it for us to lose the centrality of Christ as the one that we worship? And I have desired in my prayers, as we pray among a family, as I pray by myself, as I pray here in the church to focus, maybe you've detected even up here in church, to focus our attention upon the risen Savior, the one who conquered through the cross. In a Rock Valley Bible Church, I simply say that our worship needs to be God-centered and it also needs to be Christ-centered. And the problem with just swaying to be God-centered in our worship is that we then become no different than Muslims and Jews. But we are very different because we worship Jesus. We worship Christ. Well, in a few moments, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But we're going to respond to my message this morning by singing a few songs that really focus upon Christ, His work upon the cross, His implication into our lives, our, our delight and our glory and our satisfaction of everything that Christ did for us. And we're just going to sing these songs right here on our insert. Before the throne of God above, the look, and I will glory in my Redeemer. Great New hymns of the faith that focus their attention upon Jesus Christ. Because that's what heaven is all about. It's all about Jesus and worshiping Him.